Welcome back to Lost in Rosha, the ultimate journey through the Stormlight Archive. I'm Christian. And I'm Jimmy. Today, we are diving into the Way of Kings prologue, the legendary prologue to begin it all. And as always, we will be doing full spoilers ahead for pretty much every single published Stormlight book, novella, whatever. So beware, this is a reread podcast. But most importantly, I want to ask you a question, Christian. Yes. How you doing, man? I'm good, dude. We are in two different parts of the world. And with that comes a very annoying time difference. So Jimmy and I have to schedule in these calls at very frustrating times. So it's the evening in Australia now, and Jimmy has crawled out of bed, holding his Way of Kings tome, ready to go. How are you feeling this morning, dude? Uh, cl- I'm clutching Way of Kings in my chest, trying to will myself to be awake. Uh, it, no, yeah. it's not that bad. Uh, but if I do sound a little bit different, it's because I haven't had my coffee yet. Uh, but you're... you're, you're you're in way worse shape than I am, my friend. You're wearing like a cowhide, like you're you're uh, you're bundled up. Your heater's out I'm, in your house. It's I'm good. like on. I'm knocking on death's door. This is the, my last, my last swung song talking about the prologue, <laughs> and I'm calling it, <laughs> calling it a day. No, it's it's good. I've I listened to the chapter again this morning. This is the chapter I think that I've read, listened to, taken notes on the most in my Stormlight Archive obsessive career, if you can call it that, because as you guys know, this prologue repeats itself to some degree in every book from a different perspective. And the opening lines have kind of become iconic, don't you think, at this point? Yeah, I mean... If there's ever been like if this truly is your last hurrah and you're going to freeze to death in, in, in the wonderful <laughs> Australia, I, I would hope that, uh, you know, this would be the one that we would cover because this is not only just one of the more iconic parts of Stormlight Archive, but it's also one of the dentists. And we come back to it multiple times uh, through other prologues in the series. And I think in our approach of the prologue, we're going to talk about things that come up, but we are probably going to save some of the stuff for um you know, uh, later on when we get to the other prologue. So we're not going to give it all away, but we're definitely going to go here in depth and, and get some questions answered because you're a scholar when it comes to this prologue. Like you said, you've been over this time and time again, and <laughs> I, well, I haven't. Uh, I've, I've read it once on my read through. I really enjoyed it. And now I'm back and I got a lot of questions and I've forgotten a lot of stuff. Uh, but some of it still uh, it sits in my mind. Uh, for instance, you know, make sure he can, uh, Dalinar finds the word, most important words a man can say. That That's a line that always stuck out to me. Uh, and I knew that we would probably be seeing more of Dalinar in the future, which of course we do in Oathbringer. We really get to see Dalinar come to, to the forefront and his backstory as well, which is great, uh, which fills out a lot of why Dalinar acts the way he does in this prologue where he's humped over drunk on the table. <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly. So th- this is just a great, great prologue. Uh, one of the things that I, I will say about it is I forgot got how obnoxious like the lashing stuff is like it's i remember it being (laughs) jarring when i read it but like it's a lot yeah it's like atmospheric intro okay video game tutorial now (laughs) here's your basic lashing (laughs) this is a like whatever but on the other side of that i remember reading this and being like oh my gosh for the first time I understand what's going on in the action. So what you give up for sort of um, the smoothness in the writing, you know, it kind of breaks it up how he kind of Mm -hmm. does explain things quite a bit. You do gain a great sense of cinematic um, visualization 
Um, and I really could, there's not a moment in this fight scene or in this prologue that I can't fully understand or visualize what's going on. Did you feel that as well? Well, so one of the biggest hiccups I have as a reader um, is that I don't visualize very much, if at all. Mm. And it's just something like I've always had problems with it. I also have problems like remembering people's faces. I don't know if that's like if there's something wrong with me or something, (laughs) but like that's just how I've always been. So I understand the mechanics, right? Like you start to piece it together. Okay, he's lashing, he's pushing and pulling, yada, yada, yada. But as far as like actually visualizing it, very little, unfortunately. Okay. Uh, which sucks because one of the th- cool things about Stormlight is that it's it's epic. I mean, there's a lot of big stuff that happens in this series, and I have very little images of it in my head, which which sucks. It's not great. Um, Sanderson does write in a way, though, that is very window pane prose, as he calls it. So uh, it, it's easy for me at least to follow along and know exactly what the the setup of the scene is but when it comes to visuals i'm just like i'm out that's why i love your videos on youtube because you always have visual aids and i'm like oh that's what a herald looks like that's that's crazy (laughs) yeah i would have never guessed yeah and that's thanks to that like there's all of sanderson's books have a amazing fan art community like the art for these series that you can find online is ridiculously good so yeah those help um one of the things that, drew, that have drawn me into Sanderson's world, at least from my end, I, I'm very visual when I read. And this is basically playing like a movie in my head as, as I read it. And mm. there's a lot of cool visuals in this chapter, especially I'm jumping ahead a bit. But the first time Zeth inhales the stormlight and it just like darkens the entire room and he's glowing ready to take him on. I'm like, oh, I can just imagine sitting in the movie theater or watching the pilot episode. It would be so cool. You know what's wrong with uh, the, I can imagine you sitting in a theater, but I can't imagine the, the stormlight. Like, what's wrong with my brain? <laughs> yeah, it can sense like when something's not real. I guess I don't know. Yeah, I got, I got, I, I got some sort of block restrictor plate on my brain. Um, <laughs> there, there's a lot of this stuff in here that gets explained though, and and you're like, whoa, you know, the first time we're thinking about the first time you read it, you're like, what? Like these lights are going out and he's sucking in the stormlight and he has mm. a shard blade, uh, which of course we see a little bit in the uh, in the prelude to Way of Kings, but it's back here in the prologue 4,500 years later, which yeah, is wild. I've got a fun fact about that too. Okay, let's hear it. Well, again, I'm jumping ahead, but who needs structure on Lost in Discovery? We just, <laughs> oh, Lost in Rosha. Oh, see the marketing, <laughs> the marketing campaign's falling apart. Lost in Rosha, guys. I'm out of, I'm not into it yet. But the thing about this is it's not a shard blade. It's an honor blade. It's one of the Herald's blades that Zeth has. And he has Jezrian's or Jezrian's honor blade, who we saw in the, in the prelude. Mm. so sando does a little he he's lying to us a little bit by saying it's a uh shard blade so is there any kind of hint in this prologue where we could find out that it's an honor blade or is this recontextualized later it's recontextualized later because if um i'm fairly certain i've got this right but the thing is with an honor blade is once you've got an honor blade you take on the abilities of that herald's mm. order basically you don't need to be a radiant so that's why zeth can do all this crazy stuff it's because he's got the blade not because yeah. he's a radiant 
Yes. And you could tell by the way people are uh, interacting with him in the in the prologue that he is something different. Like, what are <laughs> you? You know, and, and he's doing things that are not normal, even in a world that's as fantastical uh, as Roshar in, in, in this current stage. One of the things I will say is like uh, and this is going to be one of the cool things about going week to week. You know, I do Bend the Knee, which is a Song of Ice and Fire podcast. Um, and when you go week to week, chapter by chapter, you start seeing the intention of how things were structured as chapters and the way they were put together. And it's really, really cool. One of the things I immediately noticed in this prologue is that you can actually feel that 4,500 year jump. And yes. we had a uh, we had a listener comment and we were talking about how is the Bronze Age. He's like, it's actually the Stone Age and mm. the Bronze Age weapons were given by the heralds and the knights radiant which i thought was really fascinating and it probably was true it probably was the stone age for for roshar but immediately jarring you know to in, in a good way like 4500 year jump and it does feel like a totally different thing than what we read in the prelude so i i appreciated that and i thought it was awesome yeah i what he does really well and you're right going going week by week is good you do see the intention and going back now um, I see that you you form a lot of connections subconsciously. Like I would have connected a lot of things when I first read this that I'm not understanding until now. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of threads that you pull from the prelude until the prologue. So you're basically like, oh, those dudes we saw with the crazy swords in the in the first thing, that's this guy now. And everyone <laughs> thinks this guy's weird. Well, like <laughs> things have changed. And hey, we've got buildings. We've got a whole <laughs> royal family. They're like, yeah, technology has progressed and so on. Yeah. yeah. Um, this chapter has so much going on in it, man. Where do you want to start? Right at the beginning? Yeah, I think we'll start at the beginning. And, and you know, a quick summary. Uh, I mean, most people here have read the book, I would hope, uh, in this <laughs> podcast. But, you know, it, it, it it's basically set up as a prologue where a king is to die. Right. And that that's the first line. Uh, Zeth, the son of Valeno. How, how do you say it? Yeah, Zeth son son Volano. So, so far as I can tell, with the Shin culture, son son just means like grandson, like I son son, and then Volano was his grandfather's name. That's basically oh interesting how their naming convention works. Yeah. So, truthless of Shinovar wore white on the day he was to kill a king. So immediately, it's set up in a, in a fantasy world. We're thinking a, a assassin is going to be willing and, and gun ho about doing his job, which is assassinating. But we end up getting a prologue where it's someone who is not super keen on being an assassin, and mm. there's a mis there's misdirections in the information that's related to the. Re- it's really it's it's a really great prologue. I really do enjoy it, um, but. I want to read the death rattle uh, at the beginning of this and we can, kind of talk, we can <laughs> oh, set the yeah. stage. I'm ready uh, for the death rattles. Yeah. Death rattles have been your thing for many years <laughs> now. So I'm, I'm kind of excited to see what you think. I'll, I'll read this death rattle here at the beginning of the prologue it says to love men is a frigid thing, a mountain stream, only three steps from the ice. We are his. Oh, storm father. We are his. It is but a thousand days and the ever storm comes collected on the first day of the week of Pala of the month of Shash, uh, these names, uh, <laughs> of year 1171. 31 seconds before death, subject was a dark-eyed pregnant woman of middle years. The child did not survive. Man, I remember reading that for the first time and being like, I have no idea what the heck that was, but I I like it. <laughs> but I should <laughs> pay cool. attention. To yeah. Mm-hmm. So if you're a, 
listener, you've read this um, series before, but it may have been a while. So I think we should maybe just go over what's what the death rattles are and what mm-hmm. what's going on here. So um, the death rattles are crazy prophetic things that people are saying right before they die. They are being collected by Mr. Taravangian himself, and he's got a bunch of workers called the Silent Gatherers, and they have this evil hospital where they're slowly killing people as they sit beside their beds with a notepad, (laughs) ready to go, like, say something, say something, predict the future. I know. Um, Because these things are um, predicting things. They're prophetic. And on my channel, I did a whole series on the Death Rattles, and there are so many that end up coming true in the story. And to go one level deeper, these death rattles are being caused by an unmade. And and an unmade is basically an evil creature of odium. And we can go down a whole rabbit hole here, but you basically have to be near that unmade. Wherever that unmade is, people say death rattles basically. So the unmade is near Carbranth during the Way of Kings. That's why these people are saying it where Taravangian is. But it does move throughout the story because um, people in Bridge 4 end up saying Death Rattles. So you can kind of track its movement on the map wow. of Rosha as you hear Death Rattles, which is, it's wild. That's so cool <laughs> and so passive, but so impactful. So when you say the unmade, to be clear, uh, this is more than one person or monster? Oh, yeah. So like the unmade, there's nine unmades. Mm-hmm. They're like these evil odium creatures. There was the one in um, Erythiru, a few books down, that was like duplicating mm-hmm. people, the one that Shalan and Adolin face, if you remember that. Yes, yes. Um, yeah. So there's nine of them. This one's name is Molach. I don't know what it looks like. We haven't seen a description of it. But there is, of course, there's an in-world book where someone's researching the unmade <laughs> and um, th- that's where I've gotten a lot of my information from. So I'm, I'm studying the in-world texts. Um, that's, and that's a whole nother level the, meta. This is, <laughs> it's, it's weird to say, but I'm trying to be surface level here because if we keep going, it's going to be a death rattle podcast. The death rattles are so interesting. So yes. that's the basic backstory of them. The one that's being said here in this chapter is a little bit more straightforward, unfortunately. It's more about the back half I'm pretty cool with. Like, it's about a thousand days and the Everstorm comes. Um, If you do the math on it, it's a bit over a thousand days before the actual Everstorm comes in the story. So it's, like, kind of accurate, not quite. Um, There's also the chance that the people who are writing these down are taking some artistic liberties. We don't know if it's, like, an exact quote. Good point. Yeah. Hmm. Um, the first part, I'm not sure. Like, the love of men is a frigid thing, a mountain stream, only three steps from the ice wall. That's a fairly, like, straightforward analogy. You know, the men can turn very quickly from water to ice. When it says, we are his, O storm father, we are his, potentially just mentioning odium, evil things are coming, the ever storm. I think all it is is really like a doomsday prophecy post yeah it's it's an yeah. apocalyptic threat world ending times type deal which you know yeah. I, I think is 
almost integral to being classified as epic fantasy. I've, I've had yeah. this discussion before. It's like, what, what makes truly epic fantasy, right? And it yeah. seems like one of the common threads is always some sort of like existential threat. So we kind of get like a little bit of a hint of that right here. Uh, and then a whole bunch of other stuff in this prologue. Yeah, I'll just I'll just tease it for the future episodes. Some of the death rattles are insanely specific, like exact scenes with main characters get described in death rattles. So I'm excited to talk about those. But yes, you're right. It's time to get into the prologue. Yes, I, and I know many, many people are going to be looking forward to those death rattle episodes. And when we get to a death rattle that we think is significant, we will we'll go full hog and and, and jump right in. So. So, yeah, we open up uh, the prologue and we have a guy who's going to kill a king, but doesn't really want to. And I enjoy the misdirection that we get right off the bat. Um, the white clothing was of Parshendi tradition, foreign to him, but he did as his masters required and did not ask for an explanation. Mm. So we, we see here, OK, the Parshendi, easy. Parshendi are the enemy and that's it, right? As you're yeah. reading this the first time and then we quickly we find out that it makes almost no sense that the Parshendi would have hired him but zet doesn't care like he's like don't care doesn't matter if it doesn't make sense like yeah zet zet is just like look i'm not going to question it if i die though that would be a pretty cool perk like he doesn't want to be doing it but he's also not going to fight against it because he has no choice he's that devout yes and it, it becomes evident that he that he's cursed with this and that you know the one life that he cannot take is his own which is one of the lines that i love in this prologue and and really kind of starts building out his culture of his people uh pr pretty early on which is funny because in book five i think we're gonna see this right yeah it's it's the culture that's been teased the most shinovar the mystical land of the chicken What's going on there? <laughs> why is why is the grass normal? Why is it basically Earth? Why do they love stones? And we're slowly getting there. And in book five, I know, I mean, we've seen a preview chapter chapter in Shinovar. We're starting to unravel it. Um, but yeah, it's been teased so much. And there's still basically we don't know much about it. Do you know the the basic backstory of Shinovar though? Uh, I just know that they don't seem to like stepping on stones. That, yeah, that's, that's basically right. the only thing I gathered and I got that from this prologue. So, <laughs> yeah, well, the basic idea of Shinovar is and the basic idea of Rosha is and we learn this later in the series. It's no secret that humans are not native to this planet. Doesn't make sense. Look around. There's crustacean creatures everywhere. And then these fleshy dudes. Why? Why are we here? So. The humans have come from a different planet in the Cosmere way back when. And they settled on Roshar. And the place they settled is Shinovar. That's why it's like Earth. It's normal. It makes sense. There's like horses and cows and grass. And it's like your standard fantasy. And all the people from there look like, you know, Western um, European humans that's why they're like wow zeth has big baby eyes because that's his background um <laughs> so that's yeah that's that's why shinovar is the way it is um like earth but be but with the stones and the culture that's a whole other that's a whole other discussion do you have some theories about that i mean yeah <laughs> of course of course i do can you give um, the elevator pitch for it the elevator pitch is that there oh i'll keep it brief but there are it's got to do with spren we've seen 
the stone shapers when they're messing you know all of these radians have abilities right and some of them include melding stone and changing um, materials a lot of them do and there's a scene in i think rhythm of war where venley's doing it she's like touching the stones in erythru and it's going all wobbly and she starts hearing the voices of ancestors and um stories of the past and this is shown kind of or alluded to in um a preview chapter that's come out with zeth there are like these stone shamans in shinobar who worship the stones and listen to the messages from it so there's something going on there with spren and stones and they're like they worship them to that degree so like i said it's all it's all in the early stages there's nothing concrete that's the word i'm gonna use (laughs) there's nothing concrete yet and this is what you're getting with lost in roshar guys quality (laughs) puns (laughs) puns and dad jokes abound Mm. uh, which i think sanderson would approve of so (laughs) so we're keeping it on brand well i'm excited to see uh shinovar in book five and i'm and i'm assuming we're going to get some big reveals when it comes to the stone stuff and 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 more so i mean maybe it's just the fact that shinovar is staying closer to what the original culture was you know and we're probably going to get a lot more history about the landing and seeing the site. And uh, I'll be curious how it, it will come to be that Shinovar wasn't explored. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, before this, like, where's there not enough resources for people want to expand out that way? Were they not able to? Because you feel like it may, people would have went and seen this place at some point in the 4,500 years or more. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because like, okay, the humans settled there. And then eventually, you know, they spread out. Um, mm. Why do we have this, such a, like, it's, yeah. Did the Alethi and all the other people just forget about the roots? I mean, it's been, it's been a long time. I don't know. All these questions. Yeah. I mean, I'm definitely curious to see what happens. But uh, our favorite person from Shinovar, which is Zeth for now, uh, <laughs> yeah. is kind of going through and he sees uh, Dalinar Colon <laughs> and he steps around him, the king's own brother who is slumped drunken at a small table interesting right uh the aging but powerfully built man kept uh waving away those who tried to encourage him to bed um it's so bizarre seeing him like that still to this day it's so weird seeing drunk Mm -hmm. dalinar especially because he's so uptight isn't he this whole book um he's a troubled man he's a very troubled man and it's it's i mean i'm so detached from it at this point it's kind of funny just seeing drunk dalinar (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it really is. Yeah. And then, like, you know, we, we see uh, Dalinar, and then we hear, you know, the king's daughter, Yasna, Elakar, the king's son and heir, sit at the high table, uh, which is interesting that he mentions their names, and then you think, okay, those are just, like, two kids, but we find out that they're very much their own personalities and their own characters in the books, which tells me that anybody that gets named in Stormlight is someone that we need to take note of and, and understand there's probably a lot more to them than just them getting named in a, a sentence. But the bigger thing here is whenever Zeth looks up on the stage or at the table, uh, Elikar was in conversation with two men, a dark-skinned Azish man who had an odd patch of pale skin on his cheek and a thinner alethi looking man who kept glancing over his shoulder i underlined this and put ask christian who <laughs> talk to him christian who, who, who are these people yeah so these are two heralds keep your heralds count up people because we're two. gonna see a few yeah that's two so nail with the odd um mark on his face he's got like a crescent moon um light patch of skin on his cheek 
he's the herald of justice. We did not see him in the prelude, um, but who we did see in the prelude, just like from the perspective that we were reading from last week, is Kalak, and that's Kalak, the shifty man looking over his shoulder. And this is something that's driven me crazy because I don't know what that was saying to Elokar. This is like something I've been racking my brain for. Why? Not necessarily why, but what were they saying to him? Yes, and, and I don't know, but we're going to keep an eye out for things that Elokar says. Does Elokar ever have a line of dialogue that doesn't fit? You know what I mean? Something like where you're like, mm-hmm. how does he know that? I want to keep an eye out on Elokar as we work, work you know, chapter through chapter through the series and see if anything were to possibly tip off what this conversation was about. Because you're right. What in the world would they have to say to him? And were they just being kind? Were they being, you know, general, you know, sh- just shooting the breeze with the guy? Or were they having a serious conversation? That's a question. Mm. Well, now that you're saying all these options, I'm kind of reaching a boring conclusion, potentially. Because okay. Nail and Kalak are there. They've been talking to Gavilar. That's what they've been doing. Um, and they're constantly referred to as like foreign dignitaries, like in the other prologues that so they may just be like splitting and being like, yeah, cheers for having us, Elokar. Like, yeah. lovely, to, lovely to talk to Gavilar and all that. Maybe just a bit cheeky, a little, you know, a little, little wink. wink. Yeah, a little wink. Yeah, yeah. Good luck ruling the kingdoms. We're out. <laughs> <laughs> We're heralds. No big deal. Everything's yeah. going well. That's good to hear. Yeah. You know, yeah. We didn't do anything wrong 4,500 years ago. I, I, Dude, why are the heralds at this feast? Like this feast is is massive, obviously. It, it, it wasn't a one-off in a prologue. But you know, what are they doing here? Different things. So there's a few things going on. Um, Gavala is cooperating with Kalak. He thinks Kalak is pretending to be a herald, which is pretty funny. By the way, I'm working with some information from the Stormlight 5 prologue, but I'm not going too deep into it. I'm just making some assumptions from it. So Gavilar is working with Kalak just to get information. Nail is kind of tagging along and keeping an eye on things. And Nail is actually one of, like, basically the straw that breaks the camel's back. He's actually the person who... (laughs) starts sets in motion the the assassination of Gavilar. So the meeting with him does not go well. And through a series of conversations, which we can piece together through all of these prologues, Nail basically plants the seed into um, Venli's mind that Gavilar has got to go. Even though Eshenai also gets freaked out by him, it's actually the two sisters' combined worry about Gavilar that mm. um, set this in motion. But... Nail had a now had a part to play in this too. So that's why they were there. They had a meeting. The others have a different story. Plots on plots on plots. That's what I mean. It's just oh it's God. a lot. We've got to try and contain it to this one. I mean we'll try. And, and remember, you know, we're coming back at this on a reread, but the, when you're first reading through, you're just trying to like juggle all the terms and the people. Like oh. it's, I think it's intentionally overwhelming. Yeah, I mean, we just spoke about two people who weren't even named. We just got a brief description of their appearance, and look how much we can pull from that. It matters, like yeah. majorly, majorly matters because we still don't know exactly what you know what's going to happen with heralds. Will there be new heralds? Uh, but the existing ones are right here. 
uh, yes. which we just read about in the in the chapter before, which is really cool. Uh, Zeth is making his way through the room, and he passed rows of unwavering azure lights that bulged out where a wall met floor. They held sapphires infused with stormlight, profane. How could the men of these lands use something so sacred for mere illumination? Another big distinction between the Shinovar and the rest, you know, the Alethi and, and the other people as well. Uh, this is showing us that these, this light is not something that is just taken for granted. This is, for all intents and purposes, magical almost, right? Yeah. It seems like the Shin still have a massive respect for Roshar as a, as a whole and everything it has to offer as a magical land. And it seems like the Alethi have just, you know, they've just taken it on and they're working with it. So it's just two different perspectives. Um, and it's interesting that the first, it's cool that um, Sanderson chose for the first taste of Roshar to be kind of through an outsider's mm-hmm. perspective. Mm-hmm. I think it makes it easier as a reader. Yes. Yeah, I agree. I think, uh, especially if Shinovar is supposed to be a little bit closer to like, you know, uh, a normal earth, uh, that some of these things would definitely pique Zeth's interest as well. And then thinking things are profane, we can then extrapolate, you know, exactly what his people believe and what their culture is like as well. So it's really just uh, excellent. I I really, really enjoy Zeth's POV here. And I think that's why a lot of people love this character, even though he is killing Gavilar in the prologue uh, and is not presented as straight up like a protagonist like a good guy uh, at, at the forefront but uh just a character that you can kind of attach yourself to in this wild uh foreign land yeah so. it's interesting how your perspectives change because at this point i'm like yeah gavilar's gotta go man someone's gonna do this <laughs> this guy's <laughs> someone's gonna stop him i'm kind of with the parshendi you know this let's yeah <laughs> and Zeth is someone you come around to, and I think we'll come around to him even more in the next book as well. Yeah, I would I would definitely agree with that. And, and also is just powerful. Uh, it's, it's like the first power creep in Stormlight is seeing the fact that, you know, Gavilar uh, is is by by himself a shard bearer, shard blade. He, he's, you know, he's not a joke. Uh, and Seth's even better than that. So it, it's like that first kind of taste of like, whoa. This guy, like there's some seriously yeah. powerful people here. Like Zeth's taking this dude down in his pajamas with a rope. Yeah, with a broken you know? jaw, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it kind of sets the stakes. Like once Kaladin starts getting his powers, you're kind of you've got Zeth as like the comparative point as Kaladin mm-hmm. gets stronger and stronger and stronger. Like when are they going to face off? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and I think that this begins the build that way, and then Kaladin, we see his journey to becoming so powerful, which is uh, pretty awesome. So Zeth is uh, is leaving the feasting chamber behind. Uh, just outside, he passed the doorway into the beggar's feast. It was an Alethi tradition, a room where some of the poorest men and women in the city were given a feast complementing that of the king and his guest. A man with a long gray and black beard slumped in the doorway, smiling foolishly. The weather from wine or a weak mind, Zeth could not tell. Have you seen me? The man asked with slurred (laughs) speech. He laughed and began to speak in gibberish, reaching for a wine skin. So it was drink after all. And then Seth brushes by this this guy slurring his speech. And I actually didn't even take note of this because I was like, oh, okay, it wasn't named. Like, let's move on. It wasn't a super vivid description, 
But Christian, you you set me on the right path and you said, oh, no, 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 no. This is important. So so who's Harold number three? Harold number three is no other than Yezrian, the king of the heralds. And I wish we I wish you were recording when I told you this because your reaction was so good. I finally <laughs> surprised you. Um, the Sanderson is so slick here. I will give him that because right after that, you kind of like, oh, yeah, random, random drunk guy. I'm just trying to find the page in my copy too. But straight after that, he says, have you seen me? It goes to a description of, and then like Zeth saw all these statues of heralds. That's right. So you can kind of be like, oh, that's what he's talking about. Have you seen? Oh my God, that's so good. I didn't even realize that even after you explained to me it was him. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So you see (laughs) that. They've got slightly different names, but you can tell, like, I mean, I'm not even going to try. Yezeraza. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. So that's Yezreel. Yeah. So he starts with him. So have you seen me? There he is. Kelek is Kalak. Ishi is Ishar. Talonad is Talon or Talon, however you want to say it. Mm. And then it says that Shalash's statue has been removed. Um, Do you know the story behind that? No, I have it circled, and I said, we need to dive into this. So what's what's the deal? Well, Shalash was the herald of beauty, and with her madness or change over time, she destroys all depictions of herself. She destroys all the paintings of herself, all the statues, anything she sees. And we actually get um, get an interlude at some point in this book watching her destroy paintings and stuff. So her statue's destroyed. At this point, you think, oh, it's probably her who destroyed it. And then later on, um, in Rhythm of War, through another perspective, you, yeah, it's confirmed that she was at this feast too, um, messing around. Yeah. Everyone is coming <laughs> to the ball. Damn. Yeah, everyone's at the ball. It's so cool. It kind of reminds me of, again, another Song of Ice and Fire comparison where it begins in Winterfell and it's kind of wild to th- imagine all those characters being in the one spot mm-hmm. at the beginning. It's, it's amazing. And this is kind of the Stormlight version. <laughs> Vance Raider was, was actually there when, when Bobby Baratheon was in Winterfell, when he asked Ned to be hand, we find out later, you know, Mance Raider was in Winterfell, which is crazy. I know. Let's just uh, switch this real quick <laughs> to another song of ice and fire theory podcast. Yeah. The Mance thing blew my mind. I mean, so, this is one of the reasons why I love both series, though, is that like, you know, there, there's a lot of value on reread and there's a lot of little just things tucked in and then perspective changes later, more information comes out. And then even without implied text, you know, that, for instance, the the fact that I don't think we see Shalash in this prologue ourselves with our own no. two eyes, do we? But we learn later that she's here. So it does make you read this chapter differently, even without that context in, in the actual uh, prose. So. I, that, that's why I love both series. And this is so much fun. Um, we hear that uh, Zeth is wearing white, not to, not to blend in or anything, but to actually stand out. Uh, he is an assassin in white, which is another subversion of assassin in, in a fantasy world, which I really did enjoy. White to not blend into the night, white to give warning for if you were going to assassinate a man, he was entitled to see you coming. Like that's very cool. White, uh, bit it's very very cool i don't know if there's anything more to that in terms of if you want to get into the law i think it really is just a partially tradition yeah 
I think it might be. Yeah. Yeah. Part of my brain wants me to find some crazy thing. He's wearing white because (laughs) I can't think of anything, you know. Well, honestly, if you think about, though, it's in stark contrast to what we find out the Alethi are doing. Gavilar's moving in secrets and he's moving in shadows and, you know, he's very much working behind uh, the door, you know, like the Wizard of Oz. Uh, But it's not... It's not that way for the Parshendi. Like these are very different cultures uh, and Parshendi seem to be a lot more upfront. Uh, you know, reading it at first, you kind of think the Parshendi are the antagonist. And then later on, we get all that kind of recontextualized. Uh, but I, th- I think it's just to draw a distinction between culture and tradition and the way that they go about handling things. Uh, the Parshendi seem to be a lot more upfront. Yeah. Whereas us humans are always meddling in the shadows. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, Exactly, and now we start to get into the fighting. I believe mm-hmm. now we yeah. now we start the lashing. The <laughs> lashing begin. Get out your notepads, people. What's a basic lashing? lashing. Yes, <laughs> pop quiz at the end of the show. Yeah, <laughs> um, it is useful. I will give him that. It is useful. It is, but it, yeah, you're right. It's a bit much at first. It's a necessary evil. Uh, I, I kind of think of like time jumps, right? Like no one likes a time jump, but the best way to do a time jump is just to get it out of the way and do it and then just plow on ahead and hope people keep up, right? And I think that it's just a necessary evil it, with the way Sanderson likes to do magic and uh, in his world building is there, there are going to be times here where you just kind of have to open up the mouth and accept the fire hose, you know? <laughs> yeah, just- it's, it's hard magic. You need, how else are you going to learn it? It's better than turning to the to the back of the book you know mm-hmm. it's it's a good compromise it's a good compromise yeah. and it's all there you know it's, it's all there for straight up for you to read and understand so it's not that bad like you said you don't you don't have to reach toward, to an external source outside of the actual story so it is what it is we got to get it out of the way um but all these lashings happen uh and there's also hints that zeth is being punished and there's a line where he even mentions the void bringers he said um, he had heard that the Voidbringers could hold it in perfectly speaking of Stormlight, but then did they even exist? So now we're seeing that maybe people don't even believe these old legends. And he said, uh, the next line says, his punishment declared that they didn't. His honor demanded that they did. Yes. What is up with this line? That's a, there's, there's a lot being said right there. Yeah. So we're kind of touching on why he was exiled from Shinovar. Mm-hmm. So going back to that line, it's from what I'm gathering, this is something I'm a little hazy on if I'm honest, but it sounds like that he was basically um, of the belief that Voidbringers did, ex- did exist, Radiance, Herald, all of this stuff. And they're like, no, <laughs> you can't mm-hmm. be saying that kind of thing. And they've exiled him. This is the one thing I'm a little hazy on, but it feels like that's the most plausible explanation. I think that I think that you're right. I'm curious of why he believes this. Like, why did he believe it? But also what would have made him because obviously without even being in Shinovar, we understand that these are a very tight, like tight knit group. Like they are very close to each other. They have distinct rules, it would seem. uh, And you play ball or you or you get exiled. That, that, at least that's what it seems like. So I want to know what was so pressing for him to push this issue this far. It's weird. Because, well, he we know that his dad 
had like one was protecting one if not more of the honor blades like that's how he has Jezrian's blade hmm. so they had the blades of the heralds so why is it weird to acknowledge such things if they have evidence um and yeah one must wonder what shinovar looks like now that there's been everstorms what are they going to do when Kaladin shows up on their doorstep? <laughs> yeah, the buddy cop. Buddy I don't know drama. if that's going to go over so well. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, the the Zeth Kaladin road trip through Shinovar is going to be so fun. <laughs> and then we, lightning. Yeah, I think I think it's going to be a big unlock, um, even for this prologue probably, and and understanding more of what was going through Zeth's mind. Uh, there's a section that said. Uh, to kill, it was the greatest of sins. And yet here Zeth stood, truthless, profanely walking on stones used for building. And it would not end. As truthless, there was only one life he was forbidden to take, and that was his own. For all the for all the crap we've given Sanderson for the lashing comments, we have sentences like this, which are just so good. And they yes. set Zeth has so much conflict within himself, and it's makes a, a, an action scene much more interesting because you have somebody who's so conflicted within themselves. Yeah. And I feel like probably when Sanderson was putting this together, these are the type of lines that came to mind, right? Like these are the kind of lines that get you out of bed to, to start writing about a character, I think. And whenever they stand out, they really do uh, because they're almost a little bit more elevated than, than some of the other stuff that he's writing there. So I like to take note of this and, just, just even the title, truthless. Like, what does that mean for you? What, what do you think? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I suppose it's another thing that I, I suppose is tied to the Shin culture and how they view history. Mm-hmm. I suppose, like, you are decreed as truthless if you don't follow whatever doctrine they're feeding you. Yeah. So they're just look. They're just obsessed with stones. He's got the oath stone. That stone. was the, that was the thing that I was like. He's listening to a stone. When I first read this, I'm like, "What is going on? What kind of world is this that he's holding a rock?" And he's like, "Yes, I will destroy them all for this rock." Um, yeah, look, it's another just it's another peek into the the Shin culture. But what I love here is when the guards start to see Zeth and. He, like I said, he sucks in the stormlight. All the light disappears from the room. And when they're like, what are you? And he's like, I'm sorry. And he just gets carving straight away. This scene, I, I don't know about you, but for me, I loved reading it again. And I found it, I find Sanderson's action is one of his strongest suits, right? Yeah, he definitely does battles very well. Um, I don't know if this is like a hot take, um, but as someone who enjoys manga and anime, like very anime to me at oh, times. 100%. Yeah. Um, especially later on when we get some long monologues, like, you know, uh, it, during the fights and stuff. But I don't mind that. I don't care. Like, I'm down. I, has, I have no problem with that. Uh, I love Seth saying, what are you? I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's almost laughable, like when I think about it, or like if I read it a certain way. But yeah. it does go further to subvert the idea of an assassin in a fantasy store. You know what I mean? Like begrudgingly slaying people. Yeah, and I this morning I listened to it on audiobook, 
And I'll I'll tell you that the way Michael Kramer read that line, he sold it. Like yeah. he said, it depends how you read it, right? I'm, like, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not quite like that. But yeah, he kind of says it like it's like he was gonna say something else, and he kind of surprises himself with sorry at the end, like he was gonna say like I'm death or I'm the end. But he's like I'm sorry. <laughs> like I'm he's Ron gonna... Burgundy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and. We were talking earlier where you said, where we were kind of wondering if the shard blades were a way of making things a bit PG, how there's no blood and your eyes just bubble up. But I kind of forgot this insane kill that Zeth does where he's lashed the dude onto the ceiling. He's like kept him there. He took care of everyone else. And then he props up a spear under the dude and then he unlashes him and he falls and like kebabs him. He, he <laughs> skewers him. And I'm just like, well, I think that destroys our argument about making this PG. Cause I was like, whoa, I forgot that this was so brutal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I yeah. mean, you get a lefty on a stick, you know, and roast him. It's, it's, it's no good, dude. Uh, yeah. Is that part of Shin culture? I don't know. <laughs> I, I think his Sanderson's creativity definitely goes all the way through to his combat. I think he likes to have these very vivid, lively, creative scenes uh, f- for the action. And and why wouldn't he? He creates an entire magic system that he gives hard rules for. I'm sure that he thinks about possibilities and scenarios where he, they can use it. And it's a pretty good uh, expose on lashing, I would say. Yeah, and it's very reminiscent for all the Cosmere fans out there of Mistborn. Mm-hmm. It's basically Mistborn without the coins and you can kind of fly around and manipulate gravity, which is a very cool power. And he's really, you kind of see all facets of it straight away. Like you can do it to objects. You can do it to yourself. You can in like push it multiple times into things. There's like levels to it. Um, mm-hmm. And it creates these really dramatic scenes. And I always, I, I was thinking this morning, like how this look in an adaptation, it's, it it's would be a very hard task to film something where people are experiencing two types of gravity. The closest comparison I can think of is like inception when they're in the, the hotel and it kind of looks like zero G, but mm. some people are going to be falling one way. Other people are going to be falling another way. You've got to think about like how their hair would move and everything. But I suppose Seth's is bold. It was that like a consideration in filming. <laughs> like, Maybe a lot of them are wearing helmets. I mean, I don't yeah, know. Yeah. Like there's all these things. Um, I always go into the visual side. So it, it's very cool. And we get the, um, the decoy strategy. Yeah. Um, which is yeah. a very bold thing to do right out the gate. Right. Like it tells you so much about Gavilar. In fact, oh. Yeah. Dude, it should actually tell us that Gavilar is way more like in the know than than we think. And and we do have the line where he says, you know, I expected you to come, uh, which, you know, OK, well, he was expecting something. Why was he expecting it? But like the fact that he did the decoy and stuff like Gavilar is a sharp, clever, crafty dude. Yeah. Um, and well, to to also dip into the fifth prologue, which we've been given, he was warned. So Gavilar's not that onto it. He got a little tap on the shoulder. 
Yes, and I some... have not read the the oh, prologue. Oh, but I'm I'm, sorry, I'm okay. I'm, no, no, I'm okay yeah. with you talking about it. I'm I I need to. In fact, I probably should at this point since we're doing this podcast. Um, so who told Gavilar? So Gavilar throughout the fifth prologue is talking to someone who may or may not be the Stormfather. It's still, I had like a two and a half hour live stream when I was trying to figure this out. Um, it's that it's someone who is saying they're the Stormfather, but they're kind of a bit inconsistent with how we see the Stormfather later in the series. And it's kind of a little weird that the Stormfather would never tell Dalinar that he was like with his brother. So there's all those questions, but at some point in the chapter, they're like, Hey, someone's coming to get you. I've got to go. So he was warned just before this happens. Oh, hence wow. the line. Like I expected you to come. Yeah. My God. Okay. Yeah. This is big. So, this is mind altering stuff. I mean, this is insane. Yeah. He's, a, and he's a great, well, where I will give him credit is he seems to be an incredible fighter. Oh yeah. Absolute yeah. Chad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And Sadius, his ride or die pretending to be the king will give him some points for loyalty there. I can't stand yeah. Sadius, but that's a pretty cool move to, to go. I mean, that's honorable. Him. I would yeah. say. Yeah. We, we we'll give, give him up. that. Yeah, but but regardless of that, even on his last words, Gavilar's questioning if this was Sadius's doing, which is kind of <laughs> funny. <laughs> like even after all that, he's like, Sadius, it must have been. Uh, um, but we kind of he he goes into more explanations here of how the um, shard plate works, mm-hmm. um, how it can only be damaged by a blade, a spe- the specific shard blade. And Zeth kind of has the aha uh-huh moment, like, oh, why would the who would be the king here? Like, mm-hmm. would this would this guard run after him or blah blah blah? So he kind of comes to the realization. Then we get the the really good fight where furniture's throwing everywhere, and we head out to the balcony where uh, this is such a such an epic epic conclusion to this chapter. Yeah, the uh, the wooden balcony. Like, could they, could they not have had a, a stone balcony? <laughs> yeah, like the, this incredible, <laughs> this incredible um, palace, sparing no expense. Yeah, the wooden balcony should be fine. There's there's no sort of insane assassin coming to <laughs> to destroy us all. Yeah, it says Zeth screamed, kneeling, infusing stormlight into the wooden balcony, lashing it downward. The air frosted around him. The tempest roared, traveling down his arms into wood. He lashed it downward and did it again. He lashed a fourth time as Gavilar stepped onto the balcony. It lurched under the extra weight. The wood cracked, straining. The shard bearer hesitated. Uh, Zeth lashed the balcony downward a fifth time. The balcony support shattered and the entire structure broke free from the building. Zeth screamed through a broken jaw and used his Oof. final bit of stormlight to lash himself to the side of the building. He fell to the side, passing the shock shard bear, then hit the wall and rolled. And this is kind of the end of uh, Gavilar or the beginning of the end. Yeah, this is something that sometimes doesn't occur to me because in my mind, Seth is so like soft spoken and edgy. Mm-hmm. When they're saying like Zeth screamed, it's very hard for me to picture that. For some reason in my mind, he wouldn't do that. And I'm trying to remind myself that, yes, he would um, in this moment. And it kind of paints a different picture to how I've imagined this scene. What I really love is I I love imagining like 
Gavilar's falling, Zeth falls too, but then he switches the gravity to the side of the building. Mm-hmm. And he's it's such a interesting visual. And then he eventually is walking down the side of the building. Like imagine how eerie that looks, like the dead body down there. Oh, and Zeth's so just alien. like defy yeah it's so alien right mm-hmm. it's so cool um and then the last words you know what after all that and i forgot that it was just like a, a splinter of the balcony that went through gavilar like through the the breaking in his plate it just seems like such a such splinter does the word splinter have any significance in the cosmic <laughs> i mean yes i don't think it was actually referred to as a splinter though i think it was uh. like like a uh, I suppose I should check. I'm but trying to go. I'm like, trying to go too tinfoily here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was pretty much just like <laughs> some wood, you know, yes. some of the balcony. Yes. I'm fairly sure. Yeah. Um. So yeah, then we get this little chat. I expect you to come. You can tell Thydeka that he's too late. Now this is yeah. where we should be distinct. I think we'll have the rule that we're not spoiling big things in other Cosmere series. But we can confirm that Thardikar is someone from another book series in Sanderson's big old world. We yes. And you get, you can gather that from just reading Stormlight by the end of um, the fourth book. He's called the Lord of Scars. You know that he's leading the Ghostbloods. And there's a whole other conversation there about the ghost bars and Gavala working with them, etc. So he's suspecting Thydeka. Then he guesses Rastaris. And Rastaris is the name that he knows Kalak under. And he also asks about Sadius. So these were just three people he was working with. And Gavala has his finger in so many pies. He's working with so many people trying to do so many things. He's just very paranoid. He's just throwing out names. Of who could have betrayed him. And ultimately his goal is to bring back the Heralds, right? Yeah, like he wants to... It seems like he wants to become a Herald, to be honest. In mm-hmm. the in the fifth prologue, that's kind of the... From my... I haven't gone back to that since it came out, but from my memory, I remember just being... That's what I gathered, that he was actually trying to become a Herald. And he's trying to... He's just trying to bring back those old glorious times of the Radiance and the Heralds but for very selfish reasons, not for any other, like, honorable feat. Yeah. So not not purely uh, for, the, for the best of all people, um, but also no. for himself. Um, yeah, he's a very selfish guy, Gavilar. Mm-hmm. And I suppose the last sort of thing that um, we can talk about is the little sphere mm-hmm. that... He gives to good old Zethy boy and getting really into stormlight law. This is an anti void light sphere. So this is something that we don't even like touch on until all the way at the end of rhythm of war after like the science arc with Navani and Raboniel and all this stuff. Um, short version is Gavilar was like, deep into the visiting other places in the Cosmere and bringing things back or having things brought back to him. Basically like Gavilar is four books ahead. That's <laughs> what that's telling you. He's playing chess. We're playing jackers. Got it. Yeah. 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 Basically that's it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, unite them, unite them. We need to, um, well, but 
before that, we need to find the most important man's aware uh, a man can say. I guess he's just trying to pass the torch to yeah. Delano, continue my work, bring back the radiance, and so on. And you, you know, you got to wonder, like, are we going to learn more about that? Like, maybe it's not as simple as that. And there's like a whole nother side of this thing where Gavilar then gets, you know, uh, put in an even better light somehow, you know, after being kind of exposed as selfish uh, in, in meddling in all these places. Uh, I don't know. I wouldn't put it past uh, Sando to do that here in Stormlight because I feel like he's always changing the perspective of what's been good and bad, uh, which is part of the fun of the series. Um I just yeah, I'd say you're onto it. I'd say I I'd say that's a high chance of that. He loves it almost seems too obvious now, right? Like I don't mm. I, I don't know, but maybe that's us going one bridge too far. Who knows? We've definitely been like in um theory mode, tinfoil mode this episode. Hey, here's the thing. So the reason why we're doing this podcast, like for the folks listening, the reason why we're doing this is because we're only ever going to get to read through Stormlight for the first time, like all the way through waiting for releases once. Like this is it. Like you'll never, like you're going to get answers. So it, you better just machine gun all the theories you can <laughs> now and have fun because once it's done, it's done. So yeah, that's it's true. Part it. It's part of the charm. Yeah, we can go back and be like, we told you so. You heard it here first. I mean, and uh, that's one of the things that's special about Stormlight and why it's one of my favorite series uh, is simply uh, uh, just on the basis that there's not a lot of massive series being written right now. There's a lot of trilogies. There's a lot of four book series. Uh, a lot of them go a book a year and, you know, then they're over. Greenbone Saga by Fonda Lee, something I'm thinking of, you know, it was released in a pretty timely period within like three or four years, three books. And it was fun. It was great, but it's over. And there's no more new releases for Greenbone. There's no more this and that. And it's just no one's going for it at this level. Uh, I'm sure there are series out there from from other people, but like this is the prominent one. This is the Wheel of Time. This is the A Song of Ice and Fire. Um, you know, this this is the big stuff. So I just uh, I don't know. I feel fortunate that we're getting to check them out as they come out. Like this scope is just crazy. Yeah. And with the planned um break after stormlight five this is going to be like it's going to be a five-year break i think after the fifth book which which breaks my heart but we will cross that bridge when we get to it but you realize man this story is probably going to span a a huge chunk of my life our lives yeah yeah these like when whenever book 10 comes out that's you know at the very least like what 15 years away 10 15 years i don't know i mean it, i think when i did the math i'll be in into my 50s when the final book yeah. comes out welcome to, welcome to Lost Lost Lost. i like how i'm making it sound like when you're 50 you're like <laughs> <laughs> i know that's so bad for that's me so i will bad. be i mean i'll be lucky if i make it that far to be honest my genetics oh. are lackluster at best so. we barely got through this episode dude it's like i said it's <laughs> We're just barely holding this sinking ship together. <laughs> but yeah, man, what a good chapter. What I mean, just chapter. just great. Um, the Parshendi, that makes no sense. And then uh, even Zeth thinks about that. He says the Parshendi makes no sense. Nothing makes sense anymore, Zeth whispered. <laughs> very edgelordy of him. Yeah. It's all unraveling. I am sorry, King of the Alethi. I doubt that you care, not anymore at least. At least you won't have to watch the world ending with the rest of us. 
so Zeth has that feeling mm-hmm. that it is all coming unraveled. And Gavilar, even with all of his answers and his knowledge and his forewarnings, is still confused. He still doesn't understand why this is happening. And maybe this Parshendi thing was the curveball. I mean, it was the curveball. That was his undoing, and he did not see coming. But it's interesting he wasn't warned about this. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he was, I think, a little overconfident because, mm-hmm. you know, when you are four books ahead, you're like, look at all these people. What are they Yes. Um, and, you know, you can underestimate that. You can rub some people the wrong way mm-hmm. and they have something, they can have the means to deal with you. So, yes, rest in peace, Gavilar. You know Rip. what? I am not a thousand percent sure that we won't see him again just because of the nature of Sanderson's novels. I think he, so I, I heard a theory of long back in the day. And I remember it was the first theory I fell in love with the stormlight and people were talking about how in Warbreaker there's like this whole magic with life and stone and stuff like this. And then you have Shinovar liking stone and, and th- oh. basically people were saying that th- there's a statue made of Gavilar, right? Isn't there? I'm at sure. Some, I'm at sure some there point is in the story, I think there's a statue of Gavilar and people right. think that he's alive in the stone. <laughs> that's very cool I, I, i'll tell you what i'll do a little bit more research and we in one of these episodes i will do a little aside and we'll talk about and i'll get the full details because right now i'm butchering it because it's off top i haven't seen it in three years so it's been a long time um i'll get the whole theory and i'll present it to you i'll present my case <laughs> yes and then you uh christian colon can decide whether or not <laughs> that i am uh onto something or not it's actually Christian safe hand. I'm taking it on. No, Christian safe um, hand. <laughs> um, I think if I'm right, because of all their soul casting and stuff, you actually just get turned into a statue. Like they just change you into stone. So um, is there a way we can bring them back? Maybe. Well, yeah, I suppose like there is some sort of awakening in Warbreaker where they do bring things out of. I, I don't remember if it was stone or not. I've only read Warbreaker once. Like, yeah, like three years ago. Yeah, I definitely am going to have to uh, like get the details of that theory and I will present it. Maybe cool if idea. I have time, I'll do it for the next episode and I'll present my case to you <laughs> in our in our uh, little intro. Yes, that would be cool. Awesome. Um, so, yeah, I think we should wrap it up about there. If you unless there's anything else you want to mention about the prologue. Uh, no, just the final um, thing. Uh, Zeth leaves the King's shard blade and says the blade Zeth already carried was curse enough. And we know that that is an honor blade, which, you know, does change things quite, quite a bit on a reread. So this was awesome. This prologue was fantastic. And uh, Christian, I, I, I love the fact that I just get to ask you questions for an hour at a time. And uh, everyone listening <laughs> probably gets the, the laugh at me and my bad pronunciation. So it was fun. What a prologue. And now we are actually, after two long little <laughs> sections, we're finally going to get into the real story of the Way of Kings. Yes, and I think next week will be the first time where we tackle maybe a couple chapters at once, mm-hmm. which will be a nice change of pace. Yes. And yeah, as always, guys, thank you for accompanying us on this episode of Lost in Roshar. Remember, the most important chapter a man can read is the next one. We'll see you next week to dive into those first um, two chapters where we finally meet the man himself, Kaladin Stormblessed. Yes, and if you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, be sure to leave us a review on whichever platform you listen on, and we'll see you next time on Lost in Roshar. And remember to keep that safe hand covered. <laughs>